Genesis chapter 48. We're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read you the chapter if you want to just follow along. Genesis 48, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And when it was told Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. And then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that, you have, that have been born after them shall be yours, and they shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And when Israel sought Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. And then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Well, then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not, not so my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know my son, I know. He also will become a people and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now we're coming into the last three chapters of Genesis. But don't start collecting your things. Don't start packing up. Don't start getting ready to move on to the next book. Because Genesis does not end with a thud. Kind of like the Genesis satellite did this last week. Those of you who are here Wednesday night, we talked about this. The Genesis satellite, this satellite that was out there for three years collecting solar particles. Why? So that scientists 
could discover the origins of the earth. All they had to do was read the book. It's right there. It's very simple. It's plain as day in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Now the thing is, when you get to the end of setting a book, especially like Genesis, as long as it is, 50 chapters, the further you go, you get toward the end and you start thinking, okay, I'm ready to be done with this, let's move on. But I, I beg you not to do that. Don't think that way. Don't get ready to skip ahead into Exodus. Exodus is a great book. But these last three chapters of Genesis are not to be missed. For in them is some of the most powerful prophecy in all of Scripture. In them we see a foundation laid that is stunning. It's amazing. We're going to see a couple of things here just in a couple of verses today. But I want to encourage you, even if you haven't been here on Wednesday nights the last few months as we've studied through this, even if you don't have that background, that's cool. The next couple of Wednesdays we will finish Genesis. And I encourage you to be here because it's very, very powerful stuff. Well, before we go on in our study this morning, let's pray. God, I, I pray that you will bless the hearers of your word this morning. Bless the reading of your word and the study of your word. Bless this fellowship of Christians here today, Lord. Bless all those who have come into this place, into this barn this morning, to worship you and to hear from your word. Bless this Father as Jacob blessed Joseph and his sons. And give us insight and understanding beyond ourselves. Help us to see, Holy Spirit, the things you want us to see. And help us to grow in our conviction. And especially, Lord, in our desire to be people who pass on the legacy of our faith that you've given to us. God, give us boldness. Not a spirit that says shrink back, but one that says go forward. Build us up in spirit, not on our works or our deeds or the things that we've done, but in the power that rests solely in your Holy Spirit, living and working and moving among us and doing what you do in the church. Father, explain these things to us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two verses this morning. The last two we just read. Let's read them again. Verses 21 and 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, a couple of things to jot down. Number one, Joseph shows us a mortal reality. A mortal reality. He says literally, behold, I die. Behold, I die. Behold, I die. It's the fact of life that no one wants to face, but isn't there a time in all of our lives where we face that reality? Where we recognize the truth and the power of it? I was 10 years old when this reality hit me momentarily, riding my Sears Silver Zephyr bike on a swim team bike hike. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. And I thought I could handle it. I thought I was invincible. You see, there is an illusion of invincibility that tends to walk with us in the world in which we live, in the lives that we live, and especially the younger we are. Man, as a 10-year-old, I could do anything. I knew I could fly, and my silver zephyr was just, you know, inches away from being off the ground. I didn't know how true that was. As I went flying over the handlebars of my bike, losing control, going downhill, it must have been 70, 80 miles an hour. Give or take a few. Landing on my face, 
And on my knee, I don't even know how I did that, contorted and just, I just went all over the place. It was, it was very bad. When I ate the asphalt, I realized that there was a mortal reality. But very quickly, as a 10-year-old boy would, I forgot. I was 16 years old when I had my first car accident. Two weeks after I got my license. Another just great moment in the life of Rick. And uh, I fell asleep at the wheel to the gentle lullaby sounds of Van Halen. And woke up spinning across four lanes of Southern California freeway. The car almost rolled, should have rolled. And when it was all said and done, I realized I was driving in something surrounded by aluminum foil. I mean, that's what the car looked like. I got out and the front was so dented in, I, I had a hard time even understanding it, taking it in. This car is not going to protect me. And I had to get back in that same car with a slow flat and, and I'd pull out the bumper and, and head down the freeway another half hour to where I was headed. And I was in the slow lane, you know, like this, the whole way there, going about five, ten miles an hour. People are honking and cussing at me and saying all kinds of things. I'm just, oh, I can't go any faster. I'm driving in tinfoil. You don't understand. The mortal reality and the illusion of invincibility. Yesterday, we recognized three years after 9-11. The towers that stood as a symbol of American finance and, and power and strength. No one's going to attack us in our homeland. We're America, right? And all day yesterday, if you watched TV at all, you saw the scenes as they replayed them over and over of what happened to remind us. And we need to be reminded because we forget so quickly. We go right back into that invincibility. Man, I live forever. I'm, I'm immortal. Oh, when someone dies, there's a funeral, we go to that and we go, wow, maybe I'm not. But we forget. We go flying down the road, hundreds of miles an hour, thinking, ah, no problem, and not even thinking about how mortal and fragile we are. But when you look at those buildings coming down, our fragility was a very true reality. We are not as strong as we think we are. George Pataki yesterday was talking about the, the memorial that's going to be set up there at Ground Zero and what they're working on, how it's going to look, and they showed the pictures of that. And then yesterday evening, as sunset came on, the two beams of light shot up where the two towers used to stand. And George Pataki said it's a symbol of how we will rise from the ashes. New York City will rise. America will rise. We will not be put down. We will survive. And I was listening to that thinking, I love the patriotism. And I love the strength and the encouragement that he's trying to give the people. But the reality is we will not. We will not survive. It's a mortal reality. We're going to die. We were watching What About Bob the other night. <laughs> great movie. And there's that scene where the youngest son of the psychiatrist and Bob are, are sitting in the bedroom and, and Bob's just afraid of everything in this movie. And the youngest son says, Bob, what are you afraid of? And he says, Tourette's. <laughs> I'm afraid of Tourette's. And he says, what about death? Are you afraid of death? And meanwhile, Bob's going further and further under the covers and, and he says, think about it, Bob. This is like a 10-year-old kid. We are going to die. You are going to die. I am going to die. It's going to happen. Behold, I die. This body was not meant to go the distance. And it becomes more clear every day. 
And it's not just because I'm turning 40, okay? I understand maybe I've talked a little more about the death thing lately. Maybe I'm thinking about it a little more. But it's a reality. I, I'd like you to flip in your Bible. Keep your finger here. Flip over to Psalm 39. Psalm 39. Because even if the two towers, or even if a car accident, or a bicycle accident, or the little things that shake up our lives can't convince us of our mortality and the reality thereof, Psalm 39, the Bible, God's Word, reminds us we are mortal. Beginning at verse 4 of Psalm 39, David writes, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best, listen to this, every man at his best is a mere breath. As we watch records made at the Olympics, track runners running, the fastest man in the world, even at his best, when I am at the zenith of everything I can accomplish, I'm a mere breath. Surely every man, verse 6, walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? And this is the point. My hope is in you. My hope is is in you. David says, my hope is not in this life. It's not in what I can accomplish. It's not in what I can do. It's not in how great I ultimately can be. That is not where my hope is. My hope is in you. It's a mortal reality. If not for Jesus, there is no hope. And so, back to Genesis 48. Here's Jacob standing at death's door, face to face with both a mortal reality, but also a great hope. Second thing to jot down Jacob is now passing on, in this mortal reality, a confident certainty. A confident certainty. He says, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Behold, I die, but God. I, I die, but God. Behold, I'm mortal, but God, God will be with you. God will walk with you. Even in the face of this sobering realization, Israel extends to Joseph a great expectation, a confident certainty. Joseph, I'm not going to be here anymore. We've had 17 more years together. I thank God for that. But I am dying. And this is it. But God will be with you. And even though I, your father, am moving on, God will be with you. God is here. Now, as you know, Jacob's life is not exactly a stellar example of faithfulness and spirituality. It took him a long time to come to the place of faith that he sits right now as he speaks to his son from his bed. Most of Jacob's life was not a good example for his kids. Now, I've talked to many of you about how your example is for your kids. You, you telling me, sharing with me, several people saying, I'm just not sure if I've done it or I know I haven't done it. I know I've done a terrible job. And if you're a parent, you know what I mean. Every parent wonders from time to time, have I just blown it? Have I made a mess of things? Is this my fault that they're acting this way? Well, Jacob must have looked at his boys and thought, Man, I blew it. 
And he had plenty of example to show that he did blow it over and over. But listen, if Jacob knew anything, he knew this. And this is where Jacob's life is such an awesome example for every one of us. He realized that God's faithfulness did not depend on his faithfulness. That God's willingness, God's ability, God's power, even to reach right into the heart of his family, did not depend on him. It depended on God's faithfulness. It depended on what the Lord could do. And Jacob realizes that. And he begins to bless first Ephraim and Manasseh and Joseph. And he's going to go on in the following chapters here to bless the rest of his kids. Not because he has the right, not because, wow, he's really earned this holy spiritual position. But because he believes in the faithfulness of God, he finally gets it. I die. I'm in, I am mortal, I'm flesh, I'm faithless, but God lives. He's immortal, He's spirit, and He is faithful. And He's here. We were um, the other day in the garage, actually I heard the kids down in the garage, with Cheryl, and they're bumping around doing stuff down there, and I didn't know what was going on, and Hayden came up and said, Dad, i got to talk to you. And so I, I came down to the garage where they were, and Hannah's got big tears in her eyes, and they're looking everywhere, and, and Charlotte is gone. Our guinea pig. No, hamster. They're all the same to me. They're rodents, you know. So this furry hamster is gone. Charlotte, missing. We had left in the morning and someone feeding him a little treat, her a little treat, left the cage open and out she went. Now, a lot of you haven't been to this house. We've got a garage here and we have this storage area that's huge. It's the entire size of the house and boxes everywhere and things stacked. Charlotte's gone. We can't find Charlotte. And they have actually constructed, by the time I get down there, there's a little box and they've got ladders going up and treats all in it for Charlotte to fall into the box. And I'm thinking, that's clever. That's not going to work, but it's clever. And so as we stood there for a moment, I saw Hannah as upset as she was and said, well, guys, let's, let's gather around. Let's just, let's just pray. Let's just pray for a second. God, would you help us find Charlotte? Now, I've got to be honest with you. Okay. You may be thinking, wow, that was a real spiritual thing to do, right? To think about praying. No, it wasn't. I was just trying to calm my kids down. I didn't even... Okay, the belief, the faith, very weak in that moment for me. But I'm thinking, hey, let's just pray about it. Please, God, don't let me down here. And we prayed, let us find Charlotte. Amen. And I walked into the storage area. And the very first place I looked, I pulled back the sleds, and there she was. Just sitting there. You know, as hamsters will. And we picked her up and the kids were like, God found Charlotte. This is great. And their faith went, and my faith went, and we all felt really good. Charlotte is found. And you know what? In that moment, I praised God for his faithfulness. What a silly thing. A hamster. A fuzzy little ball of goo with hair on it. Doesn't really do anything. Oh, Rick, come on. You, you really think that you prayed and God showed you where Charlotte was? I absolutely do. Why? Because God is faithful. Because he loves his kids. And because even these silly little things in our lives matter to the Father. And if he is that faithful in such a tiny little thing, how much more so in our very lives? God is faithful. Now, as a kid, when I grew up, every now and then I would think, what would happen if my parents died? And I'd sort through that. I'm sure my own kids have done that from time to time. Maybe even wished it. What would happen if Dad was just, you know, gone? I'll tell you what would happen. God 
God is faithful. And Jacob is passing this confident certainty on. Gang, our confident certainty is in the faithfulness of Christ, not in human flesh. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. The writer says, do not throw away your confidence. I love that. Don't throw away your confidence. That's your great reward. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For in yet a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Jacob had it. Faith. Confident certainty. Jacob spoke it. Israel passed it on. A confident certainty that the ongoing work of God was greater than him, bigger than his life, farther reaching than even his own sons would ultimately see. Now again, you might think, but Jacob is Jacob. How dare he pass on this faith after all of the bad example he's been for his kids. He dares because he learned where his confidence came from. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Behold, I'm about to die, but God, but God, but God, God is here. And he is our confident certainty. Now, for this next point, this all kind of leads us up here. You've got to put on your thinking caps and really work with me, because this is a tough one. Jacob knows he's dying. He recognizes his mortality. And he's passing on this confident certainty. But the next thing he does is hand over a glorious legacy. Look at verse 22. He says, I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. Now, Bible students, we've studied Jacob's life thoroughly. When did he take land from the Amorites with his sword and with his bow. Do you remember what chapter that was in? Anybody? It's not there. He didn't do that. He didn't take any land from the Amorites with his sword and his bow. And yet he's passing on to Joseph one portion more than his brothers, which I took, he says. I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. And the problem is, not only did he not do this, it's not even in Jacob's nature to do this. Drawing all the way back, Genesis 25-27, remember it said this, When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in the tent. Watching Richard Simmons. I don't know what he was doing, but he's, he's a quiet guy. Sewing, knitting, making stew. He's not the outdoorsman. This is not his nature. And there's an interesting little reminder here of Jacob's character. The word portion, the word portion in this verse is Shechem. Shechem, which means ridge. So it could read, I give you one ridge more than your brothers. Shechem reminds us of something. What, what happened at Shechem? Did Jacob strike the Amorites at Shechem? Well, Genesis 33:19 tells us he bought a piece of land where he pitched his tent from the hands of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. So he bought some land. He didn't take it with the sword and the bow. But in Shechem, something happened. Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped by a man named Shechem, Shechem of Shechem. And what did Jacob do about it? How did Jacob respond? 
Genesis 34.5 Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent. Ladies, girls, how would you feel if this happened to you and dad just stayed silent? If this happened to my daughter, I would be a raging lunatic. Trust me, I would no longer be the gentle man you see before you right now. Jacob remains silent. His daughter has just been violated, and what does he do? Nothing! And in Genesis 34, as you read the story on, the brothers come in, and they're incensed. They can't believe it. So they go into Shechem. They trick the men into all being circumcised, saying, okay, if you guys will do this, then you can marry our daughter, and everything will be cool. And while they're in pain from the circumcision, you remember the story? The sons of Jacob, not Jacob, the sons go in there and murder the town. Take out all the men. Major blood vengeance. And what does Jacob have to say about that? Genesis 34 verse 30. You brought trouble on me by making me a stink among the inhabitants of the land. Among the Canaanites and the Perizzites and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me and I will be destroyed, I and my household. What have you done? And the boys are going, we're just trying to take care of the honor of our sister, Dad. What's your problem? Oh, you brought all this trouble upon me. Oh, no. Jacob is a lover, not a fighter. He may have been a schemer, but he's not a swordsman, even for the sake of defending Dinah. Listen again to what he says in verse 22. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. But he didn't. And so, is he just senile here? Is old Jacob just kind of losing it and passing on something that's not really his to give? Now, here's where i got to stick with me. The key to understanding what Jacob is saying in verse 22 is in the Hebrew word tense that he uses. What does that mean? Not a lot, but it means something. It's the perfect tense. Oh, okay, the perfect tense. What? Okay, let me read this to you. A couple of Hebrew scholars, probably two of the best, Kyle and Delich, or Delich, wrote the following in their commentary on the Old Testament. The perfect tense here is used prophetically, transposing the future to the present as being already accomplished. Listen to that. Transposing the future to the present as being already accomplished. So that the words, quote, which I took from out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow, must also be understood prophetically as denoting that Jacob would wrest the land from the Amorites, not in his own person, but in his posterity. Gang, it's a prophecy. He's saying, I took the land from the Amorites with my sword and my bow but it's a prophecy of what would happen and it is so absolute so sure so guaranteed that he speaks as if it's already done some of you have heard this word before it's a proleptic phrase the word proleptic simply meaning something that is spoken that hasn't happened yet but it's spoken as if it already did why? because it will happen guaranteed absolutely and the Bible is full of statements like this, proleptic statements, prophecies that are 100% guaranteed to happen. Listen to this one, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5. Paul says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now listen, he says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Past tense. 
Now, I just want to take a poll here. A lot of polling going on today. A little poll. How many people currently are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus? How many people are actually there? I mean, I'm talking there, BJ. I know how you feel. Yeah, I'm mean, great. You're in the heavenly places, but no, I mean there, right now. You're sitting in the heavenly places. But that's what Paul said. He said we were saved in Christ and seated, past tense. Back when we were saved, we got a seat in the heavenly places. And I'm thinking, I've never been to the heavenly places. And Paul's going, you're not getting it. You will be. And it is so absolutely sure, I'm just talking about it as if it already happened. And that's what Jacob's doing here. It is so absolutely guaranteed, it's sure, it's what has already happened in the eyes of God. I, do we understand that prophecy is not just what we hope will happen? Prophecy is not guesswork. Prophecy is not, oh, I think this is what you're saying, so I'm going to throw it out there and we'll see. Prophecy is God saying, I have seen everything happen, and this is it. I've already seen it, so from my vantage point, outside of time, outside of history, looking back at the world and the whole progression of things from where I am, I've seen it. It's a done deal. Let me tell you what's going to happen. One of my favorite verses in all scriptures, Isaiah 41, verse 21, where the Lord throws something out to all the other gods of the world. Check this out. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are God's. I love that. God's saying to all the idols and the statues and the stone and all the bizarre belief systems that we have in the world, even today, God says, hey... I will take you as a God if you can declare to me what's coming. If you can lay it out. Because that's exactly what God does in the Bible. And I've said this before, no other religious book attempts to do this, folks. No other religious book takes this kind of risk. The Bible is chock full of prophecies. Why? So that we can look at them and go, wow, there is a God and He is behind this book. We can know for certain that God exists. All the way through, growing up, high school especially, there was all the talk, in, in my world anyway, about does God exist? And I took a humanities class my senior year and we had to write a paper, does God exist? And we had to prove or disprove the existence of God. And our teacher said, not that you can really do that, but you have to use the philosophers. And I'm here to tell you this morning, you can prove God's existence. How's that? It's right here. You're telling me that... 40 different authors put together something, wrote down stuff, and then it all happened exactly as they said with no possible error. God is here. God is with us. God is absolute. And he passes on now through Jacob this prophecy, this amazing, this amazing gift, this glorious legacy. This portion is going to be yours, Joseph, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now, chapters 49 and 50, there's going to be even more of that. That's just a taste of it. But Jacob is saying, my son, my mortality is my reality. God's faithfulness is your confident certainty. So I leave you this glorious legacy. You will have a double portion in the land. Now, I say all of that... Because I have something to say to the men of this church. 
And ladies, feel free to listen in and apply this to yourselves. But guys, I want to give you a fourth thing to jot down, and that's an awesome personal responsibility. An awesome personal responsibility. Where did Jacob tell Joseph that God was going to bring him? Look back at verse 21 one last time. I'm about to die, he says to Joseph, but God will be with you and bring you back where? To the land of your fathers. Gentlemen, listen up. Where is your land? Where is the land in which you reside? Is it the land of prayer? Is it the land of worship? Is it the land of faithfulness? Is it the land of spiritual things? Jacob promises Joseph that he will be brought back to the land of his fathers. And studies show time and time again that kids end up in the land of their fathers. Ultimately, kids go back to the land of their fathers. Guys, responsibility, strength, sound doctrine, leadership. These are things that God has handed you and said, take them, lead Because your kids are going to end up in your land. Where you've spent your time. What you've been passionate about. Where you have focused all of your attention. That's where your kids go. And they may not right now, and you may not even see it for years, but your kids will end up in the land of their fathers. I want my kids to end up in that land. Corey and Hannah and Hayden. I want you guys to end up in the land of your father, not this father. But the land of your heavenly father. Paul, who was a spiritual father himself, wrote to his spiritual son Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And he said, My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Pass it on. Grow it. Bring it up. Give it. And in the church today, the most pathetic thing is the role of men. And I say this to my own disgrace. But men, guys, there are more churches today falling apart because the men are afraid to step up and lead. Because they're afraid to do anything but sit back and watch the women go. Ladies, you have been given an incredible gift. And that's the gift of of servant hearts. Then it comes so naturally that when something needs to be done... The women just do it. Not all of them. Some of you are not very nice in that way, but most of you. And this isn't a sexist thing. That's the other thing. I think the church is so afraid. Well, if we talk too much about men, then the women are going to get upset because of the the feminism thing and the masculine. It's going to be all big mess. Hey, look. God is the one who laid all this stuff out. And God is the one who is calling on men to be men in the church. And you know what's amazing to me about this? Is whenever I talk about these things, it's the women who go, yes, amen, hallelujah, more of it. Because they want us to lead. Not to boss, not to lord over, not to command. That's Jesus' role. But to pass on. To be the spiritual leaders that God has called us to be. I want that in this fellowship. We have on the 25th of this month, the last Saturday of this month, and we're going to be doing this every month, at least every month, a men's prayer breakfast. Here's a simple way to start, guys. Show up. Show up and pray with other guys. And talk about what it is that God has called us to do in this church. The women already have their Bible studies. Thursday morning and Friday morning starting this week. And they're off and running. 
And they have no problem getting together and getting into the Word. We need a little more help. Us guys do. Don't waste the seasons, guys, of your children as they grow up. Don't waste the seasons of where they are, wherever they are. And you say, Rick, you don't understand. I already blew it with my kids. I already made a mess of things with my kids. Yeah, you and Jacob. You and Jacob. Jacob totally blew it with his kids. They ended up murderers, adulterers. The sin was rampant in Jacob's family. But he didn't give up the blessing. And when it came to the end, he rested his hands on all of his sons and he blessed them with faith and prophecy. Again, if you study these things, you'll see this over the next few weeks. Yeah, but Rick, that's Jacob. I still, I blew it with my kids. I need to speak the truth in love here. My friends, and I'm talking to parents, it's time to stop worrying and wondering and whining about what you did in the past. That is Satan's realm. Satan has no hold in the future. And so he takes us in the present and he accuses us of our failures right now and he reminds us of all our failures in the past. You blew it. You have no right being anywhere where you... You have no right to serve in a church. What are you thinking? Look at your mess that you've created. And I say stand firm in faith today. Listen to what Paul says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Gang, listen to me. The day of the Lord has not yet come. And so it is not yet time for us to give up. And that means fathers with your children. And that means wives with your kids. Single moms with your families. Grandparents. Everybody in this room. It is not yet time to stop. In the same way that we're coming to the end of Genesis and about to launch into Exodus. It's not time to close the book and get ready for the next thing. Not yet. Jesus wants us to look to His coming, but He has not yet come. And in the time we have, live it. So much of what we fail to do in saving those around us has to do with our, the fact that we're still living in the past and we're so upset about that. Okay, we blew it. All of us blew it at some point in the past. We didn't all do the right thing, whether it's with our kids or friends or family members or anybody. But that's past. And the only one who can mess around in there is Satan. Leave it and live now and go forward now and bless your kids now. Last week we talked about being a blessing. And it was kind of a fun, upbeat message. You know, hey, you have to be a blessing. Go up to someone and say, the Lord bless you and keep you. This is so much deeper than just blessing someone. This is passing on a legacy. And our legacy, whether it's to our families or to this world, can be huge. And my encouragement to you is today to pass it on. To grab hold today. And give hope for the future. And that glorious legacy, just as Jacob did, to pass it on. And some of you may even say, Rick, I'm too old. My kids are grown and gone. They're out of the house. They're out of the picture. Consider the picture that we've had this morning. Jacob resting his hands on his grandkids. Now, my in-laws, my children's grandparents are about to move into our house with us, well, eventually when it's done. 
and we'll be living there. And I, I'm so excited about that. You may call me crazy. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> but I'm excited because my kids are going to have two other voices who love Jesus, who believe in God, passing on the legacy to them. So grandparents, you're not done yet either. None of us are done. And listen, if the Lord does delay, which I hope He doesn't, but if He does, as Jacob said, Behold, I'm going to die. But God, but God, Corey, but God, Hayden, but God, Hannah, God is here. Bridge Christian Fellowship, but God is with us. And He has the power to bring us back to the land of our fathers. Let's pray. Father, we reach out in prayer this morning and ask for a strength that is not our own. And a power that we do not have. Father, I speak for the fathers among us who pray for our kids both young and grown, Lord. Holy Spirit, that you will come crashing in in the middle of our lives and that you will make a difference, that you will grab a hold of our children and that you will help them to see the truth in your faithfulness in spite of our mistakes, Lord. I pray that you will overwhelm our mistakes and our sins and our failures. And you will bring into the lives of our kids an awareness of you, Jesus. I pray for our men, Lord, that you will strengthen and encourage them not to be afraid to lead, not to be afraid of, of your word, not to be afraid to step up, Lord, not to worry about how we might look or be perceived by others but truly to seek godliness in this place. I pray for our women, Lord, that they will support that and encourage it and bear up the men. That they will stand as spiritual lights, which so many of them are. And that together, male and female, we can stand before you, surrounded by our children on that glorious day when you bring us back to the land. God, we just turn this over to you and pray that you will, through us, somehow pass on this glorious legacy. Jesus, our legacy is salvation. Our legacy is eternity with you. May we not hoard that truth, but pass it on passionately as we long for and look to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ.